So uh, my message tonight and uh, the focus of our conversation is around the title, More Kingdom, Less Empire. And uh, I haven't shared for a while because um, we're running a series called Pass the Mic, but it's happened that I've kind of passed the mic back to me this week, so just have to endure that. Um, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21 says this, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or a more literal translation uh, of that last part is that the kingdom of God is within you. And one of the central themes of the Gospels of Luke and Matthew is the kingdom of God. And I think that if we want to understand the heart behind the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of God in our midst and possibly even within us, then I would suggest that the best place to start is in the gospel of uh, Matthew in chapters 5, 6 and 7. It's a passage of scripture uh, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. And essentially, Jesus outlines the heart behind what we might call kingdom living. And I don't know if you've read uh, Matthew chapters 5 to 7 recently or ever, um, but I would encourage you to spend some time uh, just considering what are profoundly challenging words. Uh, depending on the version of the Bible you have, you might notice that the majority of the words uh, in those chapters are in red, uh, which is to mark um, the words of Jesus. And uh, it, it's challenging. It's a call to action. It's a call to humility and a call to mercy and a call to peacemaking and a call to good deeds and forgiveness and fidelity and loving our enemies even more than our neighbours and refusing revenge and uh, giving generously, uh, praying uh, very deliberately and simply, uh, rejecting consumerism and uh, even refusing to be judgmental. I don't know if you know much about my story, I'm just going to share a little bit briefly. Um, two years ago, I was the campus pastor of a mainline Pentecostal church. I never sat down to preach, I'd be pacing the stage in front of a lot of people. Uh, and I was also the CEO of the community arm of the same church. And things were seemingly going great. We were growing in numbers, uh, our community services were expanding and, and increasing and I guess the usual indicators of people uh, and reach and revenue were all looking really healthy. On the surface and, and as far as the kind of things that we were tracking, we were doing really well. But around March 2015, just over two years ago, it all kind of just seemed to derail for me. And the reality is, is that as far as anyone else who was kind of looking in or was concerned, whether it was our congregation or our program participants or our clients, things were great. We were growing, we are doing well. But I had this pervading thought that I couldn't shake. I have to get out. There was this kind of circular dialogue in the back of my head, I have to get out. And I had essentially come to the conclusion that what I was doing was building empire rather than kingdom. And for me, this was a big problem. Kingdom is very different to empire, but I think 
that in church life, the lines are often blurry and, and the lines are often confused. And I, sometimes I think we actually pursue empire believing that we're pursuing kingdom. That's where I was at. Had this sense that I was building empire and it wasn't about the people, it wasn't about the institution, but empire very much exists for its own purposes. Empire exists to build itself up. Empire demands and empire enforces, but kingdom doesn't do those things. Kingdom, like Jesus, is about invitation. Invitation to follow and invitation to your house for a meal and invitation to healing and invitation to ask questions and invitation to the banquet table. And so somewhere along the line, I'd come to the conclusion that I had confused empire and kingdom. Now, to be kind of easy on myself, I guess I could possibly be excused for that mix-up. The reality is, is that if we look at the history of Christianity, if we look at the history of the church, empire is not new. Uh, empire and emperors have existed in Christendom since at least 300 AD. Uh, with Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire. And essentially what happened with Constantine is that he established um, a precedent for the position of the Christian emperor in the church. Emperors at that time, regardless of their spiritual belief, considered themselves uh, responsible to the gods for their spiritual health of their subjects. So it was the emperor's job to ensure that the subjects did the right thing by the gods. Now, as a Christian, uh, Constantine saw it as his duty to help the church define orthodoxy and to maintain orthodoxy. And so, as the emperor, he was there to ensure that God was properly worshipped and that orthodoxy and doctrines and dogma, as determined by the church, was maintained. And so, empire enforced orthodoxy, it uncovered heresy, uh, it demanded unity by force if necessary and this was kind of the way that things worked and Jesus Jesus understood the role of empire Jesus understood the role of Rome and he understood the place of Rome but my reading is that he didn't align his kingdom with Rome he rejected the principles and the way uh, in which their hierarchy was structured he advocated and modeled a hierarchy that was built from the ground up, a hierarchy that was built on servant leadership in which every member, every member is actively working towards reconciliation and every member is serving the least and every member is reaching out to the other. So this is the hierarchy of kingdom, but the hierarchy of Rome and the hierarchy of empire privileges leadership and it privileges uh, class through rule and power and everything is focused on the leader. It's all about the leader. Uh, and privilege is assumed and expected. But the kingdom of God kind of flips that all on its head. And so, in about March 2015, I had come to the conclusion that what I was doing was more the product of Constantine than the product of Christ. And that was profoundly unnerving the product of empire rather than the product of kingdom and that was why I was very clear that I needed to leave I had essentially come to the point where there was a disconnect between what I was doing and who I believed that I was 
don't misunderstand me, I, I love pastoring. I, I, there is nothing more that I love than to walk alongside people and help them to uh, identify and to walk in their purpose. I love it. I love it. I, I love, my, my mantra is, is passionate people and great ideas for the common good. I, I just love to see people fired up and living their passion. But I felt like the way that I was doing it, the, the framework that I was doing it within, kind of didn't seem to line up anymore. It was also at that time, and this kind of became the clincher for me, that I came across the story of Dieter Zander. Um, I don't know if you've heard about, much about Dieter. I shared it on Slack for those of you that are on Slack. Um, but essentially, Dieter was a superstar of the contemporary church in the United States. He, he planted and pioneered in the 80s and 90s, possibly before some of you were born. But uh, one of the most successful and rapidly growing and largest Gen X churches uh, of its generation. Uh, he was a highly successful pastor and worship leader. Uh, and it was a mega church by all description. And in his own words, he said this, I was accustomed to the limelight, I was a talented musician, I was a successful author, I was a well-known minister and a sought-after speaker. I made my living on a stage, thriving on the applause and adoration of my audience. I believed in the myth of Dieter the Star. But then, something happened. At 2 a.m. on the 4th of February 2008, Dieter Zander suffered a massive stroke. Six days later, he woke up, having no idea what had happened. And he awoke a completely different man. He, he, his right hand was crippled. He could no longer play the piano. He, he couldn't sing. He couldn't even talk, except to kind of string together completely unrelated words that were kind of deeply strained out of his body. And uh, he shares some of his journey through quite a beautiful piece of prose titled A Kingdom of Cardboard and Spoils. And I just want to read a snippet of it to you. He says this, If I'm the king of all I survey, then I am the king of cardboard and spoils. My kingdom is a noisy, windowless room in the back of a Trader Joe's grocery store. Here are the haphazard stacks of empty cardboard boxes. Here is the giant box baler. Here are the shopping carts marked spoils, their wire frames brimming with still good fruit, meat and flowers. My kingdom used to be a stage, a microphone, a piano and an audience of thousands. My kingdom was a performance, a show, a sham. Then came the stroke. Now five days a week I arrive at Trader Joe's in the early dark hours before the sun cracks the horizon. I push my mop up and down the aisles, sweep my broom into corners to collect the debris from the day before. The store is quiet and empty. There is one audience in this kingdom. But that's okay because I'm not performing. There is no stage Dieter here. No Superman seeking to wow the masses with feats of spiritual strength. It's just me, just Dieter, the guy who mops the floor, who bails the empty cardboard boxes for recycling, who delivers the spoils to the Salvation Army, where it will feed the hungry, who won't care at all that their apple is lopsided, that their hamburger is in the waning stages of freshness. They don't care how it looks, they just want to eat. To me, this, here in the back room, this is what is real. Not the bright aisles of suburban shoppers making their menu selections from stacks of perfection. I understand the spoils. I can relate because I too am spoils over and over and over again. 
So Dita went from a platform before thousands to this guy stacking fruit in a grocery store. And, and he recounts in his darkest moments that he heard clearly Psalm 46.10, the still small voice of the Lord that says, be still and know that I am God. And years later, he wrote that all those thoughts and all those fears and all those jokes that he kind of couldn't bring to life outside of his head, that God heard them and that he felt God's comfort and that he felt God's peace and that he even heard God's laughter. And so, Dieter's what, the what of his life, changed radically. He went from a megachurch pastor to a grocery store guy and a photographer. His friend uh, gave him a used camera and photography then kind of became his outlet and his means of communication. So, his medium changed. But even though his what changed, I kind of see that his why, kind of the purpose behind it all, how he was made, actually remained the same. Dita, like us all, is made in the image of God. And so creativity and storytelling and relationship are kind of hardwired into him. But what he came to realize is that we are so much more than what we do. That we increasingly actually need to define ourselves less by what we do and more by why we do it. And I don't know about you, but I, I often get obsessed with the what. The what. And, and we see this time after time in, in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're, they're constantly questioning what he's doing. You know, what are you doing healing on the Sabbath? And, and what are your disciples doing picking wheat and, and eating it on the Sabbath? And, and what are you doing hanging out and consorting with uh, the... the the tax collectors and the adulteresses and the kind of the people of ill repute. And I think the reason is that they don't understand the why. They don't understand the why behind what Jesus is doing. They don't understand mercy and forgiveness and compassion and relationship and service and inclusion and love. They didn't understand kingdom, they understood empire. So this is kind of where I was at. And I have to wonder whether, and we'll discuss this, whether the orthodoxy of our time would also result in Jesus' murder. Because essentially he was murdered by the orthodoxy of his own time. And so I've gone on a massive journey over the past two years and it continues. And the reality is, is that what I do will change and the roles that I fill will change and, and the titles that I have will change. And I think that I'm slowly coming to a place where I am actually less defined by what I do and the roles that I fill and more by who I am as someone made in the image of God, where my why is more important than my what and that kingdom is more important than empire. And, and I have to wonder... What if I was Dieter? What, what if I could no longer do the things that have defined me to this point? What if the things that I'm supposedly celebrated for, that people kind of define me by, cease? What happens? What, what would be my reason for getting out of bed in the morning? And so part of my process in kind of shifting my thinking has really just been formed around gratitude. 
every single day at the moment, every morning and every night, and I'm finding this an excruciating process, but a really helpful process. Uh, I now write down three things that I'm grateful for. Six things in total every single day, completely different every single day. And for someone like me, uh, who is very task focused and hypercritical, particularly of myself, it's an awful process. I hate it. But increasingly, what I'm finding is that the focus of my gratitude has kind of shifted from things. It started with things and it started with achievements and look at all the things that I got done today and look at this great success. And, and now it's just people. Now, kind of in any day, there would be at least four people's names that I write down. And so I, I write down people's names, that I'm, people that I'm grateful for, and I write down uh, aspects of my relationship with them that I'm grateful for, the aspects of my interactions with them that I'm grateful for. And so I think that my gratitude for relationship, my gratitude for people, uh, is essentially helping me to overcome empire and helping me, I think, to be reminded of kingdom. And so increasingly, I think my why is relationship. My why is Jesus. My why is love. My why is a passion to see people's lives made whole and a, and a passion for justice and a passion for everyone to, to be included and a passion for the diversity and the brokenness and the kind of messiness that exists within all of that. For me, this is kingdom living. It's a new way of living, for me at least. It's a new way of understanding what it means to be human. It's a new way to, of understanding what it means to be human as described and as embodied by Jesus. I guess one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, what does kingdom living mean to you? I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into the conversation. Jesus, you, you told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, I just pray that we would increasingly understand what it means that the kingdom of God is in our midst and that we would seek to usher in kingdom rather than empire. Lord, that we would understand what it means that we are made in your image and find meaning in our why far more than we find in our what. Lord, I just pray, as you already have, that you would bless this time together. Amen. Amen.